Are you a reasonable person or do you allow irrational arguments to lead you astray? Are you able to grasp the difference between a logical argument and an illogical belief? Or are you easily duped by irrational arguments uh, as, as others attempt to encourage you to embrace an unreasonable faith? Now, with these questions in mind, it's important for every believer to realize that the Lord has provided us with universal laws of logic. And, and with these universal laws of logic, uh, he's given us the ability to embrace a faith that's founded on the facts. And while our relationship with Jesus is most certainly based on a faith in Jesus Christ, reasonable arguments can bring us to that point of seeing that it it, it makes the most rational sense to believe in Jesus Christ. At the same time, what this also means, well, everyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ has actually embraced irrational arguments that result in an unreasonable unbelief. That being the case, it's my hope that this study today, that it'll help us to see that those who are rejecting the, the Christian faith are actually relying on irrational arguments as they attempt to justify their rejection of Jesus. And as we consider the irrational arguments of the unbelievers that we find here in our text today, well, it's my prayer that we'll begin to see how easy it is to address the unreasonable arguments of every unbeliever. Now, with this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. Here we find Christ Jesus being interrogated by unreasonable unbelievers. Now, as you make your way to the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I want to remind you that we've been considering Luke's account of the night when Jesus was arrested. This not only includes the moment when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, but this also included a group of priests and captains and even elders who came to him with clubs and swords in order to uh, arrest him. And and now here in our text today, uh, we learn about the unreasonable unbelief of those men who arrested Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 22. I want to draw your attention there to verse 63. Here we learn that the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the son of man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, uh, we learn about the unreasonable unbelief of these religious rulers who were determined to persecute and prosecute the Lord Jesus. As we begin to consider the reasons for their rejection, 
Well, it's important for us to remember that these guys were well aware of the messianic miracles that Jesus had been performing throughout the days of his earthly ministry. They knew all about the miracles, and not only that, but they also knew, they knew about the messianic prophecies that the Lord had also fulfilled. They could look at his life, and, and they could look at the Old Testament prophecies, and they could see that Jesus was, in fact, fulfilling the messianic prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah. But rather than embracing all of this evidence, they responded with an unreasonable unbelief. Now, as we spend our time examining the reasons for their unbelief, we'll begin to see that the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders of Israel, they really didn't have a rational reason for rejecting Jesus. No, instead they were relying on irrational opinions as they maintained their unreasonable unbelief. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word unreasonable, well, it's used of those who fail to use the laws of logic as they think things through. Rather than using the universal laws of logic to, to form their thoughts, you know, the unreasonable people are those who ignore sound reason or, or fail to use common sense as they begin to make their decisions. And as we take a closer look at our text today, we'll begin to see how those who had arrested Jesus, well, they themselves were irrational men who had an unreasonable belief. With this as the focus, I want to direct your attention back to Luke chapter 22. Let's back up and begin reading once again there at verse 63. Here again, Luke tells us that the men who held Jesus mocked him. They mocked him. That word mocked was translated from a Greek word, which can also be rendered ridicule. It also speaks of those who jeer at another person. Simply put, they were making fun of our Messiah. They jeered and sneered and mocked him and ridiculed him. And, and rather than presenting him with a well-reasoned argument for why they had come to arrest him, they instead engaged in this personal attack as they treated our Christ with contempt. In this way, we can see how these men were actually engaging in what is called an ad hominem attack. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that an ad hominem attack, it's an informal fallacy which is committed by unreasonable people who attempt to justify their argument or prove their point of view by attacking the character or the personality or the morality or the competence of the person that they're arguing with. Rather than addressing the argument itself, they dismiss the arguer with these sorts of uh, personal attacks. And that's exactly what the men who arrested Jesus were doing. Rather than presenting the Lord with a rational reason for why they felt the need to arrest him, they instead decided to engage in ad hominem attacks as they mocked our Messiah. In similar fashion, you know there are many in the world today who are quick to reject Jesus, and they do this now by attacking the character of the Christians they know. One of the most common examples of this, well, it occurs when unreasonable unbelievers insist that they refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, and they're rejecting Jesus. Why? Well, because Christians are all hypocrites. Yeah, they don't believe in Jesus because Christians, in their opinion, are all hypocrites. Now listen, I have no doubt that there are many hypocrites in the church. And listen, it's, you know, it's not hard to find hypocrites in every group of people. Point out the group, and I'm sure we can go find some hypocrites there. 
You know, uh, for example, the, the people who are all about, you know, the climate change arguments, and yet they're flying around on personal jet planes. Yeah, they're hypocrites. Uh, what about uh, Republicans? What about Democrats? Do we find hypocrites in both parties? You better believe it. What about the independents? Absolutely not. No hypocrites there. But when somebody uh, insists that, you know, they're not going to believe in Jesus Christ because Christians are hypocrites, what they fail to realize is that this is nothing more than an ad hominem attack which fails to justify their rejection of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, the fact is that the church is filled with hypocrites. And yet, what does that have to do with whether Jesus rose from the dead or not? What do hypocritical Christians have to do with the question, did Jesus rise from the grave? Is he our savior? Hypocritical Christians uh, don't dismiss that truth. And so this is really nothing more than uh, a, a, an, an unreasonable attack on Jesus Christ by using the hypocritical followers of Jesus. Not only that, but I should also remind you that Jesus Christ himself told us that people would attack us in this sort of way. And with this in mind, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. It's there where he declared, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now from this, we can see here that the Christian who is mocked, the believer who is reviled or ridiculed for their faith in Jesus Christ, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is going to bless us with everlasting riches. And yet it's also important to, to realize here that the Lord was actually informing us that, yeah, people are going to do this. They're going to attack the church uh, with these ad hominem arguments. Uh, what this means then is that when we find ourselves facing the unreasonable unbeliever who is attempting to attack our faith by attacking our character, uh, we ought to you know, let them know that you know, these sorts of arguments won't stand up in the court uh, there in heaven. You see, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to judge everyone who rejected him, and, and he's going to expose their unreasonable unbelief on that day. And with that being the case, we ought to take some time to warn them that their ad hominem arguments will not help them on the day of judgment. They are not going to be able to stand before Jesus and say, well, I didn't believe in you because there were so many hypocritical Christians. That doesn't matter. It won't matter. Because, listen, their unbelief isn't because we struggled to walk like Jesus Christ. Their unbelief is simply their decision to reject Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's nothing more than an unreasonable unbelief. And while it's true that there are unreasonable unbelievers who appeal to these ad hominem arguments in order to justify their unbelief, well, it's also true that there are also unreasonable unbelievers who will even go as far as engaging in ad baculum attacks. Now, if you're wondering what this means, let's back up and take another look at Luke's account, which is found here in Luke chapter 22. I want to take another look there at verse 63. Here we learn that the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. They beat him. That word beat, well, it's translated from a Greek word, which can also be used uh, of those who uh, uh, are scourged. And so we see here that those who had our Christ in custody, they were not only abusing him verbally with ad hominem attacks, but they were also abusing him physically 
They beat him with a rod and they scourged our Savior. Now, as we consider the way that they abused him physically, it's important for us to remember that they still had yet to present him with a rational reason for his arrest. I want to remind you, it was back in verse 52 of this same chapter. There, Luke tells us that Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? In other words, they had swords and clubs in hand as if Jesus was some sort of criminal that they were going to have to physically get aggressive with. The Lord Jesus here is asking them to provide him with a rational reason for why they had come out against him in order to arrest him like a common criminal. And as far as we know, they didn't present the Lord Jesus with a reasonable response. No, instead they simply engaged in ad hominem arguments as they mocked our Messiah. And then they moved on to engage in ad baculum attacks as they began to beat him. Now, it'll help you to know that the term ad baculum, it's a Latin phrase that means appeal to the stick. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that a baculum, that was some sort of walking stick or it may have been a cane. And so the debater who decides to engage in an ad baculum attack, they're essentially insisting that, you know, if I can physically overpower you, then my argument wins. You might sum it up like this. Might makes right. That's what they're saying. If I am mightier than you and I can physically subdue you, my argument is right and yours is wrong. Sadly, much like those who engage in the ad hominem attack, those who then move on to employ the ad baculum, uh, they're actually being unreasonable. And the reason why is because might doesn't always make right. A person can be more mighty than the person they're debating and, and physically subdue them, but that doesn't mean their argument is rational. That being the case, it's sad to say that there are still those today who think that the best way to win an argument is with physical violence. Uh, for example, if you look at the area of the world that we call the 1040 window, what we find within this window of, of the world are, are many Christians being attacked for their faith. Many Christians in the 1040 window are being attacked and, and brutalized uh, by those who try to, you know, shut down the church and, and win their argument with ad baculum attacks. And, and while this hasn't really been uh, uh, something that's happened too much here in the West, listen, these ad baculum attacks are starting to ramp up here in America. We're seeing more and more people going into churches with, with guns. We're, we're seeing churches being burnt to the ground. And according to the research of a ministry named Open Doors, listen, more than 300 Christians are killed every year for their faith somewhere in the world. Every year, at least 300 Christians are killed for their faith by those who are carrying out these ad baculum attacks. More than 100 uh, Christian churches are attacked and burned to the ground every year somewhere in the world. With all this in mind, I should remind you of something that Jesus said in John chapter 16. It's there where he declares, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Christian, listen, the Lord Jesus here was promising the church that there's coming a day 
when, when more and more people will be attacking Christians, putting them out uh, of public arenas, uh, even killing them in the name of God. It's even possible that we here in America might uh, soon find ourselves on the receiving end of ad baculum attacks. I know that I've even gotten in, in physical altercations as I've been out on the streets witnessing to people. There are times when some people just are mad and they want to try to prove their point with physical violence. While it's true that the attacker is going to believe that their might makes them right, the Lord Jesus has already assured us that this is nothing more than an unreasonable unbelief. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that our faith in Jesus isn't justified by our physical power. If you're someone who is pretty certain that you would never win a fight, uh, then listen, no, no worries. Because your ability to overpower somebody else physically uh, won't justify your faith anyway. You see, our faith is justified not by our power to physically subdue someone else. Our faith is justified by the infinite power of Jesus Christ. Our, our faith in Jesus is justified by the infinite power that raised up our Savior from the grave. Therefore, our faith is reasonable because our faith is in the one who is all-powerful. This brings us to our third point because, listen, while unreasonable unbelievers might appeal to the ad hominem arguments as they ridicule their opponent, and while there are those who engage in ad baculum attacks as they attempt to force their point of view on their opponent, there are also unreasonable unbelievers who appeal to ignorance, uh, which in Latin is called the argumentum ad ignorantium. Now, in order to explain what I mean, let's back up and take another look at Luke's account, which is found here in Luke chapter 22. I want to focus your attention there at verse 64. Here Luke writes, And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now, here in this verse, we find the chief priests and the captains of the temple, as well as the elders of Israel. They're now taunting the Lord Jesus, and they're teasing him by pretending that they were putting his prophetic powers to the test. You know, they're, they're, they're basically saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to test your power to see if you can really prophesy. And so they blindfolded him and, and began to hit him in the face. And, and as we consider the way they, they tested his prophetic power with a blindfold over his eyes and a, and a fist to the face, it's important for us to understand that this was really just their way of trying to expose Jesus as the fraud they believed him to be. What they failed to realize, though, that they were actually fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus had already presented to his disciples. And, and it was uh, earlier on uh, in, in, uh, in his earthly ministry when he informed his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Yeah. Jesus had already prophesied about this very moment. And they were fulfilling that prophecy by attacking the Lord Jesus Christ. And while it's true that the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders of Israel were fulfilling the prophetic words of Jesus, it's also true that their blindfold test was a very irrational way of rejecting the prophetic power of Jesus Christ. The reason why? Well, it's because this test was based on, a, on an appeal to ignorance, which again is called argumentum ad ignorantium. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the appeal to ignorance is made by those who insist that an argument is true because no one proved it to be false. Or you could put this in the negative form, which is stated in this way. An argument is false because no one has yet to prove it to be true. 
This is an argument from ignorance. And with this in mind, I want to take another look here at at the way that they're going about this here in verse 64. Again, Luke tells us that they blindfolded him, they struck him on the face, and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now remember, these guys are employing this blindfold test in order to prove that Jesus didn't actually have the prophetic power of God. And while they were confident that this would expose Jesus as being a false prophet, what they failed to realize is that this test was actually based on an appeal to ignorance. The reason I say this is because, you know, these guys were essentially saying this. They're they're essentially saying, if you don't prove that you have prophetic power right now, according to this test, then this is proof that you don't have prophetic power at all. It's an appeal to ignorance. From this, we can see that the unbelief of those religious rulers, it was entirely unreasonable. And the reason I say this is due to the fact that they were appealing to ignorance as evidence for their own point of view. Their their point of view is that Jesus is not a prophet. And they're, they're, they're essentially saying that if you don't have evidence right here and now, then you're not a prophet. We see the same sort of unreasonable arguments coming from those who insist that, you know, no one has ever proven scientifically that God exists. Therefore, God must not exist. Really? So, so science is the only way we prove things? Can you scientifically prove that science is the only way to scientifically prove things? Can, can, can you actually scientifically prove that uh, immaterial laws of logic actually exist? Science isn't the only way uh, to prove things. This is what uh, Dr. Greg Bonson called the uh, cracker, the, the box of cracker, uh, the box of crackers in the, in the pantry fallacy. It's based on this idea that the only way to answer a question is to say, you know, is there actually a box of crackers in the pantry? How do you answer that? You go open the pantry and there's the box of crackers or not. But that's not the only way we prove things. And so to to engage in an argument from ignorance or to say that, well, if you can't prove this scientifically, then you can't prove it at all, it's not a reasonable argument. There are those who engage in argumentum ad ignorantium by declaring there is no evidence that Jesus ever worked any miracles. Therefore, uh, they insist that this evidence that uh, that, uh, proves that Jesus didn't work miracles. Well, you can't scientifically prove anything from yesterday. Science is based on observation. So if you're not observing Jesus working miracles right now, well, then this no longer falls under the test of science. It's a historical test. Is there enough historical evidence to to believe that Jesus worked miracles? I would argue, yes, there is. We just have to go back and look at the historical evidence, the historical documents from the first century. We'll quickly see that many support the belief that Jesus actually worked miracles, but there are people today who have an unreasonable unbelief by insisting, well, you can't prove Jesus ever worked miracles. You know, there's no scientific evidence of that. Therefore, he didn't work miracles. This is an appeal to ignorance. Clearly, these aren't reasonable arguments because they're based on this informal fallacy, the appeal to ignorance. Not only that, but the unreasonable unbeliever who rejects Jesus with this sort of appeal to ignorance is oftentimes engaging in what we would call the slothful induction fallacy. In other words, they're ignoring the substantial evidence that clearly indicates that something is in fact true. For example, let's just consider uh, Paul's report found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he tells us, that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses who saw the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose up from the grave. 500 eyewitnesses. Is that not enough evidence? 
Well, they dismissed this quickly by simply insisting that, well, we really can't trust what Paul wrote. We can't really know that this is Paul writing this and these sorts of things. And yet, yeah, we can get into some uh, manuscript evidence to show that this goes back, this, this writing goes back to the first century and there's, it was accepted early on in the church and these sorts of things. But no, they don't want to hear any of that. They don't want to consider the 500 eyewitnesses who, who were willing to testify that they saw Jesus after he rose up from the grave. They quickly dismiss it as being untrustworthy, you know, for reasons of ignorance. Now listen, if you're witnessing to someone who's appealing to ignorance as a reason for rejecting Jesus Christ, then you have to remind them of the argument that Paul presents in Romans chapter 1. It's there where he declares the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, what about the person living on the deserted island who never had a missionary stop by? They are without excuse because the created order itself reveals the the truth of our creator. The unbeliever who insists that, you know, there just wasn't enough evidence. There wasn't enough evidence to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're actually being unreasonable because God has revealed from heaven all of his, uh, uh, all of his, uh, uh, you know, his power and, and glory. And according to Paul, they're actively suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. They're appealing to ignorance while simultaneously suppressing the evidence that they claim doesn't exist. That being the case, we do well to warn them about the day of judgment when the Lord will inform them that they have no excuse for their unbelief. They might think that they're going to get to heaven and say, well, you never really gave me enough. God's going to say, no, no, no. I gave you everything you needed to believe. And you suppressed the truth in your unrighteousness. We need to warn the unreasonable unbeliever that ignorance will not be an argument on that day. Now, this brings us to our fourth, fourth point, because listen, unreasonable unbelievers will not only justify their unbelief with ad hominem arguments, ad baculum attacks, and the ad ignorantium arguments that appeal to ignorance, but listen, unreasonable unbelievers will also employ the arguments that stem from ad passionis. And in order to explain what I mean, let's back up and take, take another look at Luke's account, which is found here in Luke chapter 22. I'd like to direct your attention back to verse 65. Here Luke writes, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Now here in this verse, we find these unreasonable unbelievers. They're continuing with their verbal attacks. And while we aren't told specifically what they said, what we do know is that they were saying many blasphemous things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which was rendered blasphemously, uh, the Greek word was used of those who engage in the disrespectful speech, which shows contempt for the sacred things of God. That's exactly what they were doing. As they profaned the name of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, they were speaking blasphemously. Now it should be noted that they didn't think they were speaking blasphemously uh, because they didn't really believe Jesus is the redeemer. They thought that they were, you know, uh, talking trash about, you know, a false prophet here. 
That's right, they had already concluded that Jesus was nothing more than a false prophet, and so they had no problem mocking him. Unfortunately for them, though, they were mistaken about our Messiah, and as a result, they became guilty of speaking blasphemously about the the name of the Lord. It's in Romans chapter 10 where Paul describes these men as those who had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were zealous. They were passionate, but they didn't have enough knowledge. They, they, they didn't uh, properly use reason in order to come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. They were passionate about God, but it was a passion that was based on a blind faith. And it was their zealous passion uh, that led them to reject our Redeemer, Jesus. Now, as we consider the way that they continue to increase their insults against our Savior, Jesus, we must not fail to realize that they were, uh, they were making a mistake here. They, they were making the mistake of thinking that their zealous passion was, was justification. And, and so what they were doing was mistaking their zealous passion for rational reason. They thought that they had a rational reason uh, for rejecting Jesus, but it was nothing more than zealous passion. Rather than considering the countless confirmations that Jesus is the promised Christ, the religious leaders there in Israel, they set out to justify their unreasonable unbelief by passionately appealing to their irrational passions. And in this way, their blasphemies were based on what's called an argumentum ad passiones. And just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Latin phrase argumentum ad passiones, it's used of any argument that appeals to emotions rather than a rational examination of the facts. I'm sure we all know someone who, when you get into an argument, it's just kind of like they feel justified in their position because they're so passionate about it, because they feel it so deeply that it must be true. And listen, it's not uncommon for people to insist that their beliefs are correct because they've had some sort of emotional experience that's tied to their point of view. Not only that, but listen, there are those who are rejecting the Lord Jesus because of some sort of emotional pain they experienced along the way. They got hurt at a church or, or they had parents who were Christians and, and those parents hurt them and so therefore Jesus must not be true. I'll give you a personal example. You see, my mother, uh, who believed in, in the word faith theology, she ended up dying of cancer just before I turned 13. And I remember shaking my fist at God. Why? Because her death disproved God's existence? Of course not. Who would I be shaking my fist at then? I shook my fist at God because of emotional pain. I was mad at God. Yeah, and this was nothing more than uh, an irrational argument from my emotions. Now, whenever we find ourselves addressing those who reject Jesus for emotional reasons, we would do well to inform them about the warning that Paul presented in Philippians chapter 3. It's there where he refers to the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, it's important to understand that the word belly here in this, in this text, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context is being used figuratively in reference to the innermost part of man, where we find the thoughts and the feelings and the passions of that person. What this means then is that the enemies of the cross of Christ, according to Paul here, are those who exalt their passions, their belly, above the throne of God. In other words, God says this, but they feel a different way. 
and they think that their feelings are more legitimate than what God said. They put their passions above God, and in, that, in so doing, they make their passions God. That being the case, we should warn those uh, who are trusting in their emotions. We should warn them that the end of this idolatry is destruction. And if they continue following after their emotions, uh, well, they're eventually going to be judged for their rejection of Jesus. This brings us to our fifth point, because listen, the unreasonable unbelief of those who reject Jesus is not only based on ad hominem arguments, ad baculum attacks, ad ignorantium appeals to ignorance, ad passionis emotions, uh, but also, fifthly, unreasonable unbelievers are also known to engage in what we call argumentum ad vericundium. And I know you're waiting for this one, but uh, here we are to explain what I mean by argumentum ad vericundium. Uh, I want to back up and take another look here at Luke's account found here in Luke chapter 22. Look with me there beginning at verse 66. Here Luke writes, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus being brought before the council there in Jerusalem. And the chances are this council was actually the Sanhedrin. And, and, and this uh, consisted of 71 members of Israel's most prominent rulers. This included certain scribes, elders, and prominent members of the, the high priestly family. And, and not only that, but uh, it's also important to note that the high priest of Israel was the president of the Sanhedrin. Now, as we consider the way that Jesus was brought in before this assembly of powerful people there in Israel, you better believe that these people of authority were determined to demonstrate that authority over the Lord Jesus Christ. Proof of my point is found there again in verse 67. There again, they declare, if you are the Christ, tell us. They're demanding, they're commanding Christ to tell them if he is the Christ. And as we consider this command, it's important to understand that this wasn't some sort of honest inquiry. They, they weren't like, well, you know, if you confess to be in Christ, then we'll take a look at the evidence to see, you know, if there's justification for your claim. Nope. They weren't really interested in discovering the truth about our Savior's divine identity. No, instead, they simply wanted Jesus to incriminate himself by claiming to be the Christ. And, and, and so that way they could then move forward with their plot to crucify him. Well, rather than falling for their trap, the Lord Jesus exposed their plot by declaring, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. He's saying there are no means on the planet by which I can convince you that I am who I am. You see, Jesus already knew what was in the heart of these religious rulers. He knew that they had already made up their mind, that they weren't going to ever change their mind about their rejection. We should also notice what Jesus said there in verse 68, where he, where he declares, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Now, as we consider this statement, it seems to me that our Savior here is turning the tables on, on these men of great power. And he did this by insisting that they were religious rulers who were unwilling to consider the facts, and they were uh, ultimately unwilling to submit to the supreme authority of our Savior. 
To, to further explain my point, we should take a moment to consider an important question. And the question is this. Who in that room had the greatest amount of authority? Who in that room had the supreme authority? Now, I have no doubt that the high priest there was certain that he was the one with the greatest amount of, uh, amount of authority. But we know better. The Lord Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is the one with supreme authority. If anyone had the authority to start running this interrogation, it was Jesus. If anyone had the authority to identify the identity of the Christ, it was Jesus. But rather than recognizing and submitting to the supreme authority of our Savior, the members of the Sanhedrin insisted that Jesus submit to them. And they attempted to entrap Jesus by convincing him to confess himself as the Christ so that then they could have a legal basis for enforcing their unreasonable unbelief. What they failed to realize was that their rejection of Jesus was based on an informal fallacy, which is known as argumentum ad vericundium. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that argumentum ad vericundium, uh, this is simply an appeal to authority. In other words, those who commit this fallacy will usually defend their opinion by appealing to the authoritative position of another person. Well, so-and-so holds this opinion that I hold, so therefore, based on their authority, my argument is right. What they fail to realize is that there are times when experts are wrong. There are times when those who have the authoritative position as expert, you know, are incorrect, I, you know, one name comes to mind, Dr. Fauci, you know, Mr. Science. Yeah, he claimed to be the science, and yet he's been wrong many times throughout the course of this pandemic. There are times when the experts are, are, are wrong, and there are times when the experts at the same level uh, disagree with one another. You know, I could go and, and take a position on some sort of scientific uh, uh, a study, and, and I can find scientists on both sides of the issue. And I can simply say, well, my scientist agrees with me. But then what do you do when there's other scientists who disagree with me? Which authority do we appeal to at that point in time? An appeal to authority can quickly become a stalemate when it comes to something like science. Then there are times when people attempt to prove their argument as they appeal to uh, an authority that isn't actually an authority. For example, you know, people oftentimes appeal to the authority of uh, the news, you know, they know something is legitimate because they saw it on the news. Well, I saw it on TV, so it's got to be true, right? I saw it on the news, and so it couldn't be wrong. I mean, the news is never wrong, right? Yeah, just, just go visit the redaction page. Uh, go visit the, the, the page where they have to go back and, and, and correct all, all the things that they got wrong because, you know, uh, most newscasters today are more interested in getting the story out first uh, than getting it out correctly. Be careful when it comes to an appeal to authority as we go, well, the news said... You know, the good people at CNN who are never wrong, you know, they told me a lot of times they're wrong. Though, then there are those who bolster their argument uh, uh, when it comes to their faith by appealing to the authority of their religious leaders. For example, uh, there are many Muslims and even many Mormons who reject the New Testament as a valid work about Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because their religious leaders told them that the Bible has been corrupted over the years. Now, if you actually go look at the evidence... 
uh, you'll quickly see that we have uh, uh, just great manuscript uh, evidence that uh, supports our belief that the Bible we have today is extremely accurate to the original autographs. And yet uh, there are Muslim and Mormon, uh, you know, so-called scholars who assure their people that you don't have to read the New Testament, you know, or, or, or trust in it, you know, because, you know, it's been changed and corrupted over the years and it's not trustworthy. They're experts in, in their religious system, and yet they're not experts at all. They don't really present you with the actual facts. In similar fashion, there were many Israelites there in the first century who were rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because they were relying on the authority of their religious leaders. Well, the high priest said that Jesus isn't the Messiah. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. That's just an appeal to authority. And it's a logical fallacy showing that it's a weak argument. You see, the members of the Sanhedrin, they were basing their argument on their own authority rather than taking the time to examine the claims of Christ in light of, the, in light of the Old Testament scriptures and in light of the facts. That being the case, the Lord Jesus took the time to present them with a, a way to actually test his authority, and he did this by directing their attention to his resurrection. For example, the Lord Jesus uh, assured the Israelites that he would actually prove his identity by rising from the grave on the third day. For example, it's in Matthew chapter 12. There the Pharisees asked him to show them some sort of messianic sign or proof. And in response, Jesus declared, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. From this, we can see that Jesus here was planning to prove his sovereign authority over everything and he, and, he, and he pointed them uh, to his resurrection as the evidence, uh, the proof that Jesus is who he claims to be is in the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then he has no authority. If Jesus has risen from the grave, then he has all authority. And this was the argument that Jesus presented when he, he told them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was saying, the evidence that I am who I claim to be, but will be seen in in my resurrection. In this way, the Lord Jesus provided them with with a way to test his authority. And now that Jesus has risen from the grave, just like he promised, well, this is all the evidence that we need to appeal to the authority of Christ Jesus. Because while it's a logical fallacy to appeal to the authority of, of those who you know, can be wrong, appealing to the authority of the one who has supreme authority is always the best move because he is the one with true authority over everything. Now this brings us to our sixth and final point because listen, the unreasonable unbelief of those who reject Jesus, it's not only based on ad hominem arguments, ad baculum attacks, ad ignorantium appeals to ignorance, ad passionis emotions, and ad vericundium appeals to authority, but unreasonable unbelievers are also known to engage in what we call argumentum ad populum. To explain what I mean, let's back up and take another look at Luke's account that we find here in Luke chapter 22. I want to direct your attention back to verse 69. Here Luke writes, Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. 
Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find the Lord Jesus. He's confirming the fact that he is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. In verse 69, he refers to himself as the Son of Man who will eventually sit on the right hand of the power of of God. And they took this and understood it as a messianic term. They understood Son of Man to be a messianic term, which is why in verse 70 they ask, Are you then the Son of God? Yeah, the, the, the title Son of Man is a messianic prophecy and, and term that points to uh, also the Son of God. And, and as we consider both of these titles, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He's the Son of Man because his humanity uh, is the child of the Virgin Mary. At the same time, Jesus is also the Son of God, which is to say that he is the human incarnation of the infinite Logos. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So I like the way that Paul put it in Colossians chapter two, where he declares for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Sadly, the members of the Sanhedrin weren't willing to consider the claims of Christ with a rational examination of the facts. No, instead, they were quick to reject the possibility that he might just be the Messiah. And the reason why they were quick to reject this is because they already made up their minds. Before even examining the facts, they had already made up their minds that Jesus is not the Messiah. And we must not fail to notice that their final argument against his claims, it wasn't some sort of rational rejection based on the facts. No, instead, their condemnation of Christ Jesus was actually based on the unreasonable unbelief that they had already embraced. And it's here in our text today where we find them appealing to the popular opinion that they had already accepted. Let's take another look there at verse 70. Here again, they said, are you then the son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, now this, this person speaking here was effectively saying, we together, you know, the, 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 the group of us here in, in this meeting, we don't need to examine your claims any further because we've already decided that you're not the Christ. Listen, this is nothing more than an argument from popular opinion, which in Latin is called argumentum ad populum. They're they're saying, hey, look, popular vote has already determined that you're not the Christ. Therefore, you're not the Christ. That's nothing more than an argument from, from popularity. Well, most of us agree here. The majority of us agree, so therefore it's true. One version of the ad populum fallacy is known as uh, playing to the gallery, and that's exactly what these religious rulers were doing uh, as, as they set out to, uh, you know, this individual sets out to remind the rest of the Sanhedrin that, hey, look, we've already decided that he's not the Christ, so let's just go ahead and embrace the, this popular opinion. Sadly, these religious rulers were forgetting that just because the majority agrees with something doesn't mean it's true. Everyone in the, in the entire world voted and determined that the God of the Bible doesn't exist wouldn't change the fact that, it, that he does. Popular opinion doesn't make truth. And these guys were also uh, forgetting the instructions that the prophet Isaiah presented in Isaiah chapter one. It's verse 18 where he declares, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In other words, those who really want to understand what God has to say about the problem of sin, if you really want to know God's opinion about the stain of our sin, well, you ought to engage in a reasonable investigation of the scriptures. And if you really want to understand our Savior's solution for our sin problem, well, we ought to engage in a rational examination of the Bible. And according to Isaiah here, those who will take the time to reason together with the Lord, those who will investigate the scriptures with a rational point of view, we will begin to discover how the Lord is able to cleanse the stain of our sins through the cross of Christ Jesus. At the same time, we can also be confident that that those who are rejecting Jesus, well, they've actually embraced an unreasonable unbelief. Those who reject Jesus Christ have embraced an unreasonable unbelief. Now listen, most unbelievers think that their reasons for rejecting Jesus are completely rational. That they're entirely logical. What they fail to grasp is that their attempt to justify their unbelief is always with irrational arguments and illogical fallacies. With that being the case, I'd like to assure you this morning, Christian, that the believer who will take the time to examine their arguments according to the fundamental laws of logic, we will quickly realize that the arguments of unbelievers are entirely irrational and easily defeated. And I have no doubt that many of us are fearful as we consider getting into arguments with unbelievers, as we consider getting into a debate with someone who doesn't believe what we believe. We, we think that they might have the upper hand in the argument, that they might be able to you know, pick apart our, our belief system. I can assure you that is not the case at all. I've been studying apologetics since 1995, and I have yet to find the argument of an unbeliever to be logically satisfactory. They all break down somewhere. That being the case, I encourage every believer, let's spend time studying the rational reasons for the Christian faith. And as we continue to learn how to reason together with the God who created logic, he will help us to begin addressing the irrational arguments of the unbelievers that we care about. And as he helps us to address the irrational arguments of unbelievers, he will begin to help us to see how we can then help them to see all of the incredible rational reasons for trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because faith in Jesus Christ is the most reasonable thing that any person can do. Let's pray.